Shall we get started? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, gracious Lord, we do praise you this morning and we thank you for your holiness, God. We thank you, Lord, that indeed you are in heaven. Lord, you are perfect and all-powerful. Lord, you are truly God and truly the only right place for our faith and our hope to be placed, O God. We do praise you and thank you this morning for your great love to us. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son to reconcile us to yourself through the death of his body. Lord, we thank you that we have hope in him through his resurrection. We pray, Lord, that his newness of life would live in us each and every day as we serve you and seek to honor you and love you. God, we thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. We thank you for your mighty power, which is at work within us who believe. And and Lord, we just want to thank you for who you are and and all that you are, God. We praise you. We glorify you. We lift up your name and we exalt you. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place and to worship you freely. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to proclaim your word. We ask that you would give us insight, help the word to be clear to us this morning, God, and give our minds understanding. Help us, Lord, not to be foolish, but to understand what your will is. And God, we just thank you for the revelation that you give us. We bless you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Okay, so with that, we're back in our study of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. And uh, last week we got through verse, chapter 5, verse 17. And this morning I'm going to go ahead and read once more uh, the broader context here. I'm going to start in Ephesians 5, verse 6, and I'm going to read through Ephesians 5, verse 21. And uh, this morning we'll be looking at verses 18, 19, and 20. And so here we go with uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verse 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Amen. So here we are back in in Ephesians chapter 5, and you remember that this is part of a larger section of of, uh, the book of Ephesians, which would be chapters 4 through 6, which is the second half of the book. And you remember that those chapters are devoted to the practice of Christian living. And so remember that the first three chapters in the book of Ephesians is doctrinal, and it's dealing with doctrinal understanding about who we are in Christ and everything that we possess in the kingdom of God. And then in chapters 4 through 6, it's a discussion of our Christian practice. How do we practically live out the Christian life? What specific things do we employ to live out who we are in Christ? And so in that, we have been presented by the Apostle Paul with a series of contrasts which he has been making all the way back since chapter 4, verse 17 and following. And that's brought us all the way to chapter 5, verse 17. And through that whole section of text, it's one contrast after another that Paul has been making. And he makes these contrasts to show us the former way of life that we once lived before we came to Christ and the newness of life or the new life that we possess in Christ. Because if any man is in Christ, he is a a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things have come. And so there is a new way that we live our life when we come to Christ. And Paul is presenting these contrasts between our old former Gentile way of life and the new life that is in Christ. And of course, very specifically, Paul is drawing contrasts which would apply to the Ephesian believers. This is the book of Ephesians. And it was written to the Christians living in Ephesus in the first century. And so you kind of have to have a little bit of background about the kinds of things that they were involved in in their former lives, in their pagan lives. And, and, uh, and then you can see even a little bit more clearly how Paul's... Uh, Uh, instruction about their practical life would really apply to them. And we'll see a little bit of that today. Um, But um, the point is, is that these contrasts are presented. And if you will, they speak to us exactly where we are in today's culture. Today's culture in many ways is not much different than the pagan culture of the Gentile church in Ephesus in the first century. Surely there are some, some differences, but, uh, uh, in, in America's current state, it seems that we are conforming more and more to that that pagan way of life. And, and so there's a lot of things that are really relevant to us here. Um, but with that, last week we were looking at uh, chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. And there it says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so Paul's exhortation was that we should be very careful how we live. And we talked about being full of care to live the Christian life and not just kind of happening through our Christian life and not really paying attention to what we're doing, 
But I showed you how this was a major theme in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, where Moses was repeating the law to the children of Israel and, and how some 20-something times he repeats the commandment there to the Israelites to be very careful how they live and to be very careful to follow all the words of this law which I am commanding you this day. And, and how this is a theme in the Bible that we should be very careful to live our Christian life. We should be very full of care to obey the commandments of God. And, uh, of course, we talked about that um, extensively. But, you know, the idea then of, of being careful how you live in this verse uh, 15 is really a contrast in itself because he says right there, not as unwise, which would be not being careful how you live, right, but as wise. And, and here he's basically saying that the wise man is careful how he lives. Amen? And, of course, all of that is, remember that the therefore is there for a reason, right? He's looking back on the things which he just said, which in chapter 5 he's saying, look, be imitators of Christ and walk in love, he says. He says, I want you to be like God and live a life of love. And he says, if you do that, he says, immorality and impurity and greed should not even be named among you, Right? And he says that there shouldn't be any filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting. He says these are improper for saints. Then he goes on to say um, because the immoral and the impure and the greedy person have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. And it is because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. And so he presents us with this very sober and sincere warning against that kind of living and says that anybody who lives like that doesn't have any inheritance in heaven. Amen? And so, if you will, it's, it's really a, a, uh, a very direct and almost shocking thing that he says there. That these things aren't even to be named among us. They are not to exist in the assembly of the righteous. And then he goes on in, in verses 7 and following. He's saying... Look, he says, don't be partakers with such people because you were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. And he says, your life ought to be one that bears the fruit of light, which is what? Goodness and righteousness and truth. And he's trying again to tell us with another contrast, these are the fruits that come from Christian life, right? Not immorality and impurity and greed, but rather goodness and righteousness and truth, right? You see those contrasts? So when he says, therefore, he's looking back at those things that he has told us, right? To walk in love, he says. To walk in light, he says, right? Therefore, he says, be careful how you live. Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. And then in verse 16, he tells us how. He says, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And so he tells us as a Christian how to be careful how we live. Here's what he says. To make the most of your time. To make the most of your time. That's how you be careful how you live. That you don't spend your time in unfruitful deeds of darkness, right? Right? But rather you spend your time 
living a spirit-filled life which glorifies God. You spend your time in useful things that edify you and edify your family, right? In contrast to that former pagan life that they would have lived before, a life of dissipation, a life of, of all kinds of various kinds of sins. I might uh, point you back to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. Turn there with me and look what he says about the Gentile way of life. He says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, chapter 4, verse 17, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk. Okay, what's he saying? That you live no longer as the Gentiles live. How do they live, Paul? In the futility of their mind. You see, their thinking is futile. And he's telling us to make the most of our time. Not to be unwise and think futile thoughts. Right? He says, being darkened in their understanding. Remember he told us in verse 17, he said, Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You see, the Gentile way of life, they're darkened in their understanding. They live their life in void of the knowledge of God. And in great darkness. Not like we Christians who have the light of God's revelation. Amen? He says, verse 18, Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And you see, he says, you Christians are to be different. You're to be kind, he says in chapter 4, verse 32. Kind and tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as the Lord forgave you. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us. Amen? And he keeps telling us again and again, our life is in contrast to that former Gentile way of life, he says, verse 19, And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. You see, that former Gentile way of life was impure. It was unclean. It was immoral. Okay? And Paul says you're no longer to live like that. Instead, you're to be careful how you walk. And you're to make the most of your time. Not living your life in futility. Not living your life in in darkness. Right? But living your life in useful edification of yourself, of your family, of, of those around you. Amen? He says, make the most of your time. He says, make the most of your time. And uh, just wanted there to let you see that reminder of of how this Gentile way of life was. And if you will, it's a description of American culture. Ephesians 4, 17 through uh, 19 is a description of popular American culture. That is exactly how the world lives, the world that we live in. You can see it all around you if you're looking, if you're watching, if you're uh, understanding the will of the Lord. Amen? And he says then, don't be foolish. Verse 17, he says, don't be foolish, right? Don't be unwise by not being careful how you live. Right? And in verse 17, he says, Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, don't think like a fool. Right? 
he says, understand what the will of God is. And so this exhortation for us Christians, not only to know the will of God, but to understand it, to have an understanding of why we are who we are and why we do what we do and what it is that the Christian life is all about. We're to have understanding, Paul says. We're to know what God wants. We're to know the moral will of God. We're we're to understand that so that we can apply it, right? Remember that this whole section of text is about how we apply the commandments of God to our Christian life. And so Paul is telling us to have understanding of that. Not to be fools, he says. It would be foolish for us to be Christians and not understand the will of the Lord. Amen? So last week we talked at some length then about how you would gain that understanding. Do you recall that? Do you recall that conversation where we were talking about getting wisdom and getting understanding? We were looking in the Proverbs, and and I gave you uh, six principles there of how you could acquire wisdom. That, and that came from Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. That's on your handout there on page 41. But how the Scripture calls us to possess spiritual wisdom and understanding. And I was telling you how when Paul was praying for the church again and again in various different places in in the New Testament, you see Paul praying that the church would have this spiritual wisdom and understanding. He was constantly praying that the church would have this real discernment, he says. True knowledge and discernment so that their love could abound, right? And, and how important it is for us Christians not to be fools in our thinking, but to understand the will of God, to understand spiritual wisdom, right? And um, for instance, Paul's prayer in Colossians chapter 1, he says, for, for this reason, verse 9, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, that's God's desire for his church. He wants the church to be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding. Not to be fools. Not to be like the Gentiles who are ignorant. Who don't know. That's what that word means. The will of the Lord. Amen? He wants us to be filled with that knowledge. He wants us to be filled with spiritual wisdom. Right? And so I was reading to you uh, Proverbs chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. And here's what Solomon had to say about that by the Holy Spirit. He said, My son... If you will receive my sayings and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And so uh, Solomon's exhortation to us was to treasure God's commandments, to make our ears attentive to them, to incline our heart to understanding. 
You see, these are all things that we need to do in order to grab a hold of the spiritual wisdom and understanding of God. We've got to incline our hearts. We've got to be careful to hear the Word of God. Remember I was talking to you about the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and that the very word Shema means hear, right? And so it's translated in the English Bible, Hear, O Israel. These are the commandments I am giving you today are to be upon your hearts, he says, right? And he, he tells us, hear what God is saying. Not simply just hear the actual sound of the words, right? But that you would incline your heart to what God is saying and make your heart receptive. Amen? And surely if you treasure the commandments of God, your heart will be receptive. Your heart will be inclined to hear what God is saying, right? And here he says, verse 3, if you cry for discernment, and he's saying that it's to be the passion that's inside your heart to cry out for the discernment of God, to cry out for the wisdom of God. You know, we have so many questions in life, and God has so many answers. Amen? You know, we have not because we ask not. And so Solomon tells us, cry out for discernment. Look to the Lord. He'll give you understanding. Right? He says then in verse 3, lift your voice. For uh, Lift your voice for understanding. Right? The exhortation here, pray that you might understand. Right? When he says lift your voice, that's what he means. He means pray. Pray that you'll understand. And then in verse 4, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures. Right? You want wisdom? You want understanding? Pursue it. Go on a quest. Find it. Lay hold of it. Possess it. Amen? That's what Paul means when he says, so don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He's saying grow in that spiritual wisdom and understanding that is yours in Christ. Amen? So if you will, that's the background for this next set of verses. Which, uh, starting there in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, reads like this. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So here, Paul is going to present yet another contrast. This time, it is the foolishness of being drunk with the wisdom of being filled with the Spirit. In context here, this is a vivid picture. So think about the last three verses that we just studied last week and that I just reviewed for you. And now add Ephesians 5.18 right on to the end of it. Look at the contrasts that are drawn there. The contrast in in Ephesians 5.18 is one of being drunk or one of being filled with the Spirit. Okay? And if you will, it it, it just follows this parallel all the way down from verse 15 where he's saying, if you're drunk, you're not being careful how you live. Right? If you're drunk, you're unwise. If you're drunk, you're not making the most of your time now, are you? 
No, you're being foolish. Right? He says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So don't get drunk with wine. That's dissipation, he says. Right? But be filled with the Holy Spirit instead of being drunk. Amen? <clears throat> and so Paul's, Paul's point is rather clear. And you see this contrast all the way through. In other words, what he's saying is to be drunk is to be foolish. To be drunk is to be unwise. To be drunk is to not be careful how you live. Amen? Instead, he says, be filled with the Spirit, which would imply being very careful how you live, right? And being wise and making the most of your time. Because as we see the exhortation he gives in verses 19 through 21, that's how the Spirit-filled life looks, right? And of course, it carries on right on through the end of the book. He's really going to begin a discussion as to what the Spirit-filled life really looks like. And he's, at first he's just talking about how we as corporate Christians, what it should look like. But then he's going to go into the marriage and the family and the work relationships. And then he's going to go into to the spiritual warfare that we fight on a daily basis. And he's going to talk about what a spirit-filled life looks like. Amen? So here it is also being filled with the Spirit sides with the contrast in understanding what the will of the Lord is. Amen? And here is an exhortation for us to be filled with it. To be filled with the understanding of the will of the Lord. Amen? Not just having a little inkling, but being filled, the cup filled to the top. Amen? So, this contrast, excuse me, this contrast of uh, being drunk and being filled with the Spirit. So, Paul makes it very clear, and, and listen to what these words say. They say, do not get drunk with wine. And so I ask this question, could this be any clearer? Could this be any clearer? How about I ask that question to the group? Could that statement be any clearer? Anybody? No. Okay, so then if we're going to understand what the will of the Lord is, concerning the drinking of alcohol, what does he say? Do not get drunk, right? So, as if this is some surprise to us. Let everybody hear the word of the Lord. Do not get drunk. Surely the exhortation is broadened beyond just wine itself, but do not get intoxicated with anything. When one loses their faculties or self-control to alcohol, or any other substance. This is surely a foolish waste of time, and this is why the apostle calls it dissipation. Right? You know, uh, several translations translate this, which is in excess. They say, do, do not get drunk with wine, which is in excess. And really, I don't think that's quite as accurate as the idea of dissipation. What he's saying is, this is a foolish waste of time. That's what he's saying. To be drunk is a foolish waste of time. You know something? Even fools know that. Amen? I mean, even, even people who drink and get drunk make jokes about being fools when they're drunk. Amen? How much more the wise Christian who understands the will of the Lord 
should we know what foolishness really is here. Amen? And so the scripture uh, has these exhortations again and again. It says, Wine is a mocker, and strong drink a brawler, Proverbs 20, verse 1. And whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Amen? It's foolish to be drunk. Proverbs chapter 23. Please turn with me in your Bible to this scripture, unless you want to just look. I have it there on the handout. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 29 and following. Listen to these words. How many of you have known somebody in your life who's an alcoholic? What we would call an alcoholic. Okay? The Bible calls that person a drunkard. Okay? A drunkard. Someone who lives the lifestyle of drunkenness. Okay? And here, if you will, is an apt description of what that lifestyle looks like. Proverbs 23, 29, it says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent. It stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea, or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. Sound like a drunk? I'm staggering. Right? But I I don't seem to be ill. Right? I pass out. And then I wake up. I think I'll have another drink. Ever know anybody like that? I have. And I want you to know it's a very, very destructive thing. A very destructive thing. Beyond this, drunkenness is a sin. And the Bible warns of its destructive consequences over and over. Who among us has not seen firsthand a life ruined or imprisoned by the disastrous effects of this murderous tool which Satan wields? More than this, it is again listed among those sins which Paul says keep us from heaven's glorious gate. Maybe you're not familiar with this, maybe you are, but how about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11? through 11? There it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. The scripture makes it very clear that those who live in drunkenness will not be saved. That's what the Bible says. Of course, this is repeated in several places, like in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 and following. 
And there it says, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It's really clear (coughs) that drunkenness is not only a destructive thing, but it is a sin which the Bible says keeps you from heaven. That if you live in drunkenness, you shall not be saved. You shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, could there be a stronger warning than that? In other words, drunkenness bears the fruit of eternal damnation. That's what the word of the Lord says. In fact, says Paul, if any so-called brother is a drunkard, you should not even eat with him, but rather should shun him and remove him from fellowship. A harsh sentence indeed, but one of great love. Now listen to what we're saying. Now we're saying, if a brother is a drunkard, the Bible says you shouldn't even eat with him, because you know what? He's just a so-called brother. He's really a hypocrite. He's someone who outwardly says, I'm a brother, but puts on a mask. Right? Because really inside his heart, what is he? He's a drunkard. And drunkards aren't brothers. That's what the Bible says. Drunkards don't inherit the kingdom of God. That's very clear. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 and following. Look what it says there. He says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. You see what the scripture says about that? It says don't even associate with anybody who who is a so-called brother yet is a drunkard, right? Or any one of those other prevalent sins of lifestyle that are listed there, right? You know, God makes it very clear what this kind of sin is really like, what the effect of it is, and how the church ought to deal with it, amen? And of course, we know from Galatians chapter 6 that The idea is is not to go to the brother who's a drunkard and bust him over the head and kick him in the rear end out the front door. That's that's not the idea, now is it? What what should we do instead of that with someone who is struggling with this sin? Anyone? Pray for them. Pray for them? I'm thinking of Galatians chapter 6. Anybody know what I'm saying, what I'm thinking? Confront them? Lovingly, with the, with the purpose of wanting to restore them, right? I mean, it, it's not that we people don't get trapped in sins, amen, right? And that really, if one is a brother 
and is living in the sin of drunkenness, surely we'll, we'll find a way to restore him, won't we? If the Spirit of God is in him. Amen? And so the Scripture says, it says, uh, let you who are spiritual go and seek to restore such a one. How? Gently. Right? And, and of course, there's a very specific way that we handle that. Right? But ultimately, if one will not repent, what then should we do? We should shun him. That's what he means when he says, do not associate with him. Right? And furthermore, we should what? Look at uh, verse 12 and 13. It says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? He says, Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. He says, Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Amen? Ultimately, if that brother won't be restored, if he will not repent, he's to be disfellowshipped. He's to be removed from your midst. Why? Because he's not a brother. Why else? It can affect you, right? A little leaven leavens what? The whole lump, right? Or in Old Testament terms, you must purge the evil from among you. Amen? We call this church discipline. Right? We call this church discipline. And, of course, that is, is once we have gone through all of the steps of loving, gentle restoration, seeking to heal that brother, seeking to have God heal that brother, amen, and seeking his repentance, amen. Maybe you've never had to deal with a situation like this in the church, right? But stick around. It won't be long, amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen? That is, if you're in a church that practices what the Bible says. Amen? Okay. So in contrast to this idea of drunkenness, of being a drunkard, of living in drunkenness, of living a lifestyle of drunkenness, Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you get drunk, is that something that you do? Or does somebody actually take your hand and force you to drink? It's it's a choice that you do. It's something you do by your will, isn't it? And so then, if Paul draws a contrast and he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, what would you suppose would be the implication here? This is something that you will also do. This isn't one of those specifically uh, divine things that God does by his sovereign hand. Surely, and let me clarify what I'm saying. When you are saved, right, it is because God has come to you and regenerated your soul, implanting his Holy Spirit inside you and giving you a new nature. Okay? We call that regeneration, right? And, and by nature of being regenerate, the Holy Spirit <clears throat> indwells you. Amen? We've gone over that in great detail in the last couple of years. Right? So we're not saying that initial work of God whereby you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, right? By His sovereign grace. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the act of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? 
The act of putting on Christ and allowing him to dwell in you richly. Okay? And that's what Paul's saying. He says, don't be foolish and get drunk, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, here is a careful, wise way to spend our time. We are to understand the will of the Lord and be filled with those things which he approves and considers excellent. Since the Spirit of God resides in us, he is readily available to fellowship and fill our lives with his good bounty. We must therefore avail ourselves of his good presence by ready submission to the divine will and set our minds and hearts on things above. You know, what's Paul really saying when he says be filled with the Holy Spirit? Is this some silly mystical thing by getting drunk in the Spirit and falling all over the place like a barking dog? Is that what Paul means? Okay. Okay. And, I, you know, I mentioned that because there's, there's uh, quite a bit of false teaching that's going around about this idea of being filled with the Spirit, right? And I just kind of point that out to you with that um, wisecrack, or should I say unwisecrack. <laughs> well, it's um, the fruit of the Spirit, partly being self-controlled. I mean, if you're looking at being filled with the Spirit and, and you think that being drunk in the Spirit is and falling down and yelling and screaming mm-hmm. is being filled with self-control, mm-hmm. it's wrong. Right. The, the idea, the concept of being drunk in the Spirit is a foolish one indeed. Right? We're not to be drunk, period. Amen? Instead, we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So you ask, what then does the Bible say? What does filled with the Spirit mean? Well, let's look at that, okay? Let's look at how the Bible describes this. For instance, like in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, Paul says, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He says, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth, right? Be filled with heavenly things. Be filled with the thoughts of God, right? That's what he means when he says, set your hearts and your minds on things above, right? One might ask, how do I do this? How do I be filled with the Holy Spirit? Paul answers this in the very next verse, Ephesians 5.19. Look what he says. He says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, and always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's verse 21. That's how you be filled with the Spirit. <coughs> you sing and you and and you, um, you 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 speak to one another in psalms. Right? In other words, you do what? You speak the truth in love. What do you do? You exhort one another with the word of God. Amen? You ever seen a bunch of fired up Christians get around and spend time together? How many of you seen that? What goes on there? Yeah, I, I, it's just one constant exhortation after another to the word of God. Amen? 
And we're just, you know, what about this scripture? And what about that scripture? And God is so profound here and he's so profound there. And, and you know, people are just at this point just filled with the Spirit of God. Amen? Now, what's coming up out of the overflow of that heart is the Word of God because it's dwelling in them richly. Amen? And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying be filled with the Spirit of God so that you would speak to one another with the Word of God. That's what he means when he says speaking to one another in Psalms. Right? Taking the Word of God and applying it to our daily lives with all of the emotion and the passion that is involved in the very Psalms. Amen? And he goes on, speaking to one another in psalms and in hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. He's saying when you Christians get together, what do you do? You sing and you make melody in your heart to the Lord. Amen? And you celebrate the goodness of God. You do what Christians do. You sing. Why? Because they're happy. Amen? They're fulfilled inside. They have a deep sense of joy. And from that joy, what happens? The overflow is celebration. It's singing. Amen? Amen? Amen. Depression is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Should I repeat that one? I know it's a struggle for many of us, okay? But what ought to come out of our heart is songs and hymns and spiritual songs if we're filled with the Spirit. Amen? And if you're struggling with depression, I would exhort you, be filled with the Spirit. How are you going to do that? Get wisdom. Get understanding. Right? Acquire Spiritual wisdom and understanding. Renew your mind with the Word of God so that you might have great hope. That your life might be filled with the fruit which comes from God's Spirit. Amen? And you'll overcome depression. And you can do that through Christ who strengthens you. Amen? I know it. I've seen it firsthand. Many of you have experienced it. Amen? Carol? A wonderful saint told me one time that depression and gratefulness cannot abide in the same house. And if you're depressed, you're not being grateful. And if when you're depressed, you begin to praise God and recognize who He is and thank Him for even the small things, all things, Mm -hmm. that depression will leave. leave, Mm -hmm. And it absolutely works. Amen. Because if you're depressed, you're not being grateful. Recognizing God. And it's not to say that Christians don't struggle with depression. They do. Many times. Right? And you can see that in the biblical record as well. Right? But it is to say that the ultimate outcome of our struggle should be overcoming that depression with a deep sense of joy which God provides to those who are looking to Him and trusting in Him. Amen? Amen. And surely there are ways to do that. Right? One would be to consider being grateful. One would be consider being thankful, which we're going to be exhorted here. Um, You know, he says, uh, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And look what he says there. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? He says, always giving thanks for how many things? All things. 
And how many things is all things? Everything. You mean to tell me I'm to be thankful for everything? Amen. That's exactly what God is saying, right? So you mean I'm to be thankful for the good and the bad? Yes? Amen. What did Job say to his wife? Anybody recall that little statement, Daniel? Shall we accept good from the Lord and not evil? Right. He said, shall we accept good for the Lord and not calamity? Right? Not bad things that happen. Why? Because God is sovereign in our life. Amen? And He is at work in us both to will and to do according to His good purpose. Amen? Our life is in the hands of God. Would you want it anywhere else? Would you want to be the one who's in control over your life? I know about you, but that's where I was before I came to Christ. And I made such a shambles out of it, my life was falling to pieces. Amen? And Christ put it all back together. And He healed me. And He took me out of the depths of darkness. Amen? And He made my feet like the deer, so I run on the heights. Right? In other words, He put so much joy and fulfillment in my heart. Right? Now I'm just ascending into glory with Him. Amen? How many of you experiencing that? Amen. Amen. That's normal for the Christian life. Look what um, Paul says here. In Colossians chapter 3, I also have it on your handout there. Here is how we are filled with the Spirit. It is to lift our hearts in worship to God and allow His divine presence to overcome us to the point of taking on His character. You know, there's kind of a there's kind of a contrast here in the idea of when one gets drunk, what happens? Alcohol overcomes their sense of their their sense, right? And they become filled with that alcohol, and if you will, it has overcome them. Okay? And and here's the idea of being filled with the spirit. That the Spirit of God would so much fill us that it would overcome that sinful nature that we have. And that now our life would be the overflow of the very character of God which is living within us. Amen? That's what he means by being filled with the Spirit. Right? It's an interesting contrast between being drunken and being filled with the Spirit of God. Right? But if you will, there's a fabulous description in Colossians chapter 3 of what this looks like. Right? We are to sing, he says, and be thankful for all things. The sister passage in Colossians gives very practical advice on this. Starting in verse 12, he says, And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, he says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, 
teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You see some amazing similarities in that passage to the passage that we're looking at in Ephesians. But, you know, here, if you will, is, is how you're filled with the Spirit. You know, these are exhortations for, for something for you to do. He says you should what? You should put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness, he says. Right? Nine things he tells us here that we can do to be filled with the Spirit. He says, put on a heart. What does he mean when he says, put on a heart of of compassion? Somebody? What does he mean by that? Put on a heart of compassion. Okay, make up your mind, right? Incline your heart. To what specifically here? Compassion. Right? Incline your heart to compassion. Incline your heart to kindness. Incline your heart, he says, to humility and gentleness and patience. You want to know how to be filled with the Spirit? Incline your heart to these things. Amen? Jerry? Sounds like the Christian walk is premeditated. Surely does, doesn't it? Working out our salvation. Working out our salvation, Rich says. Work, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? How do you do that? How do you work it out? Well, you incline your heart. You put on a heart full of compassion. You put Christ on. Amen? Isn't that a theme in the New Testament? It is. Put off what? The old man man and do what? Put on the new man, which is created in Christ Jesus in true righteousness and holiness. Amen? Right? You got to put him on. Here he goes on saying... Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Look, bear with your brothers. We're all human. Right? We're going to have struggles. You know, we talk about the church being a hospital for sinners. Right? What do you expect the church to be like if a whole bunch of sinners come and get together? Right? What's going to happen? It's going to be some struggles. And what are we going to do with that? In the Spirit of God, we're going to bear with one another, right? And we're going to forgive one another. Whatever grievance we have that any one of us has, right, we're going to forgive just as the Lord forgave us. <clears throat> Amen? Amen? And we're going to seek to be compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and patient with one another. Amen? Amen. And if, you, if we have an erring brother... Should not that compassionate, humble, gentle love be the greatest power to restore him? Amen? God help us. God help us to be the people of God. And take on the character of God. So that it is the real character that we have among us. Amen? He goes on, he says, put on love. He says, put on love. Something external to you. Right? And he says, put it on. What is love? Right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Right? It does not boast. It is not easily angered. Right? Love bears all things. Right? Endures all things. 
Amen? You know the kind of love we're talking about? He says, put it on. How about this? He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Ever thought about that one? Let peace rule your heart. Amen? Scripture says, great peace have they who love thy law. Amen? You love the word of God, you know what kind of fruit you'll have in your life? Great peace, the Bible says. Even that it might rule your heart. Carlos? Uh, on that, I know before I met the Lord, I, I, uh, I didn't have peace in my heart. But then when I met God, and then I realized that the fight was over between me and God, and then I had the peace that passes all understanding. Amen. So once you get this relationship with God, He... Well, I believe he will show you that you truly have peace in him. Amen. You know, but you got to get to know him first, and then have that peace. Amen. And once you have that peace, right? Paul's exhortation is to let that peace rule your heart. Amen. You're married. Let me give you a piece of advice. Let peace rule your marriage. Here's another way to put it. Lay down the sword. Amen? Amen? Let peace rule. Let peace be more important than you being right. Amen? You with me? Oh, there's a lot of ways to apply that to marriage, but that's just one of thousands. <laughs> right? But let that peace rule in your heart. Amen? God help us. Look what he says here. Be thankful. Be thankful. Let me give you a contrast for being thankful. Instead of grumbling and complaining, be thankful. Like he says in Ephesians, Right there, he says in in uh, verse twenty, always giving thanks for some things. <laughs> you with me? Right, always giving thanks for all things. Right, he says in Philippians, do everything without grumbling or complaining. Right, be thankful. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Be thankful. You feel like complaining about your spouse? Be thankful. Don't complain. Be thankful it's not worse than it is. You with me? Trust me, it could be much worse. <laughs> Carlos. Uh, we have this... Uh that t-shirt self-confrontation that they got? Bob Schneider. Bob Schneider, he's the, he's the guy that's in charge of this uh, self-confrontation, and he was getting an exact example of how when your spouse gets angry and to do things that you shouldn't, you should, should, uh, you should immediately look at her and thank her, thank, thank her for that because it showed you 
how you're not like Christ yet. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a different way of looking at it. Amen. I, I appreciated one of the principles in the self-confrontation where they said, other people don't make you angry. You're angry because you have anger in your heart. Other people just help you manifest it. Amen. Because we're all, we're, we're, you know, we do this blame shifting thing, you know. You know, so we're angry because they did that. Right? Okay, so instead we should what? We should be thankful. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Be thankful. Always giving thanks to, for all things, right? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, think about what he's saying. Be thankful for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see yourself getting on your knees and going to God in prayer and then grumbling and complaining? You know, there's this whole idea of, of doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see yourself going to God? God, you know, that woman you gave me. And, you know, God, this situation I'm in. And, you know, we do that a lot of times, don't we? Don't we? Instead of having an eternal perspective of our circumstances. Right? Instead of remembering Romans 8.28 where it says, what does it say there? In all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. Right? Instead of remembering that God is the sovereign in our life. And that He's working everything for our good. Right? Even those difficult things that we face. Amen? So in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to give thanks to God for everything that we have and everything that we face and everything that we are and everything that He is. Because He's our all-sufficient resource. Amen? Amen. Listen, when you have God, you have everything. Amen? And Christian life is really coming to realize that. Amen? All that has been afforded to us in Christ... Okay. And also, um, having the proper perspective of who God is and who we are um, should cause us to be, really cause us to be thankful because God doesn't owe us anything. And I think everybody, people get wrapped up in this whole sense of entitlement kind of thing um, and and they're do something, somebody, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and when it doesn't happen, start grumbling and complaining, and, 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 and really, you're not owed anything by God. We're here to glorify Him. Amen. If we got what we deserved, we'd be toast. <laughs> Amen? Burnt toast. <laughs> right? I mean, frankly. And, and that's the kind of perspective we see in the Scripture. Amen? And, and, and thus we should be thankful for all things, right? Paul says then, he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Amen? Amen. He's not just saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you, is he? What's he saying? Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. How are you going to do that, Christian? Study it. Memorize it. Okay, humble yourself. Humble yourself before God, right? Because God gives grace to the humble. Amen? 
But study that Word of God. Memorize that Word of God. Let it dwell richly within you. What are you living for? What are you spending your time doing? How are you making the most of your time? I'll tell you, it's very profitable when you spend your time meditating on the Word of God. It is like a rich treasure. Amen? The important thing that Carol taught us in Monday Night Bible Study, we all know that too as Christians, but it's so good to be reminded that we need to study the Word. Not just the books about it or even the commentaries. You know, don't study man. Study God's Word. Put that down, you know, and then those things add. But, I don't know, she has a little formula that you should spend so many times in the Word before you spend so much time reading the commentaries and stuff. Mm -hmm. This is the pure stuff. Absolutely. Of course. The Word of God is the bread of life. Mm -hmm. Amen? The Bible says the Word was God. He is the living Word. Amen? And then he says, teaching and admonishing one another. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Teach and admonish one another. That's what Christians do. Amen? Surely the whole concept of disciple-making is based right here in teaching and admonishment. And and uh, like it says in the in in, um, in Timothy, right? Let the older ladies do what? Teach the younger ladies, right? Right? And this this theme, this concept, is throughout the Scripture that we're to teach one another. We are to admonish one another. You understand the idea of admonishment? How many of you understand that idea? Let me let me give you a, a word picture. Little Johnny runs out in the street, right? And his mama runs out there and grabs him by the ear and pulls him back on the curb, and she points her finger and she says, Now don't you run out in the street anymore. That's admonishment, okay? I'm not suggesting we ought to pull each other by ear. (laughs) But the idea is, look, we're going from that carnal, foolish Gentile we once were to a spiritual wise Christian and there is an admonishment that comes with the Christian life the Bible is full of warnings against the consequences of sin amen and we've got to be careful to admonish one another you know it's not just all about having fun I understand that's the popular American culture and anybody who would admonish us in America what we do is we just go down the street we don't want to listen to that anymore Right? Because our pride is stacked up to the mountains and no one else is going to tell us how to live our life. Right? But you see, that's in contrast to what the, what the Bible presents Christian life to be. The Bible tells us to teach and admonish one another. Right? And of course we're to do it in love. We're not supposed to be like vipers with fangs. Right? We do that in love. That's the purpose of admonishment. Why do you think Johnny's mom tells him to come in out of the street? Because she loves him. Right? And so we speak the truth in love. Amen? We speak the truth in kindness, in gentleness, in meekness. With that power under control, under restraint. Amen? And especially the older Christians. It's, it's easy, for at least it is for me, to receive admonishment from somebody who's much older in the faith and, and much older naturally than I am. Amen? And that's why, as, as older people, this, this is something in the Christian church that we should be practicing, seeking to bring those younger ones up in the faith and teach them the spiritual wisdom and knowledge of God. 
Amen? Amen. And lastly, he says, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God and do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ giving thanks. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Worship Him who made the heavens. Amen? Give Him the glory. Do His name. Give Him praise. Don't be ashamed of Him. Speak of Him. Speak of the wonderful things that He's doing in your heart and in your life. Let that be the overflow that comes out of your mouth. Amen? Amen. Wonderful, practical ways that Paul tells us we can be filled with the Spirit. Okay? Lastly, I'm going to close right here. It should be said that this contrast, that is the one of being drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, or being filled with the Spirit. How? By speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That contrast had a very significant meaning to the Ephesian Christians as the pagan feasts of worship in Ephesus were in fact drunken celebrations of immorality and revelry filled with the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. You know, this meant something to these Ephesians. They, they would have these abominable uh, feasts of worship in this section of the world. They, you remember I told you earlier that they had the Temple of Artemis there? And uh, the awful things that, that went on there in that temple. But uh, there was also very prevalent in that Greek area the worship of the god who is called Bacchus. How many of you have heard of the god Bacchus? The god Bacchus, he is the god of wine. Okay? And um, so, so there is what we would call the Bacchalanalian feasts. And the Bacchalanalian feasts were these absolute drunken celebrations of immorality and revelry. And what would happen is these people would get so drunken that they would do what many drunken Americans do. They would run down the street screaming and hollering at the top of their lungs, acting like absolute fools and indulging in all kinds of sexually immoral practices and, and uh, various uh, types of, of revelry. Okay? And so when he talks about singing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord, that's a real contrast to a Bacchanalian feast because that's what they would do. They would get utterly drunken. They would have orgies. They would, they would, uh, you know, have these drunken sailor songs, and and uh, they would do all kinds of crazy uh, revelry. And, and so this is a real contrast, if you will, from that former way of life, which many of them would have walked in. Okay, and if you will, that was that foolish, darkened way of getting drunk and living that life of revelry, versus the wise Christian life of making the most of your time and understanding the will of the Lord and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and living a life of worship unto God. Amen? 
So I wanted to mention it would be important for us to understand that that was a real contrast to the pagan way of life. Anybody want to comment, question before we end? Anybody at all? Daniel. Well, when you just mentioned this about um, Ephesus and, and the Temple of Artemis, in, in Acts 19, there is that whole story about how Paul has made so many converts in Ephesus that the that people were abandoning the temples, and there they, they had a, there was a riot over it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, if we were to... If, if all believers, say, in this town were to start applying these things to their lives... How many businesses would go under because, you know, we, we don't do those things anymore? Mm-hmm. Or we just find better things to do with our time? Amen. Amen. The Word of God should be powerful among us. Amen. Anybody else? <coughs> Shall we pray? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love to us. We thank you for this rich section of Scripture. We pray, God, that you will impress it upon our hearts. And, Lord, I pray that in the coming weeks as we begin to cover the topic of marriage, God, I pray that you'd strengthen our marriages, that you'd open up our eyes to see clearly, Lord, all that you have said to us in regard to this most important earthly relationship. God, I pray that you will challenge us and cause us to grow. And, Lord, that you'll cause your peace to rule in our marriages. And Father, we just look to you and we ask you for your wisdom and for your understanding, God. And Lord, we do want to please you in every respect. And we just pray that you would continue to do that work in us very powerfully, Lord. We thank you for your great love to us and all that you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.